Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyep, that's Creole for something extra. From the moment D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation became a film sensation, racist portrayals of African Americans have been embedded in film history. Author Will Haygood begins his history of black films with white filmmaker Griffith's movie, documenting the setbacks and triumphs within the context of American black history. His new book, Colorization, 100 Years of Black Films in a White World, reveals surprising and shocking details left out of most film histories. Haygood is the Bodeway Visiting Distinguished Scholar at Ohio's Miami University, following a three-decade career as a correspondent, both at the Washington Post and the Boston Globe. The Pulitzer Prize finalist has written eight other books, including The Butler, A Witness to History, made into a feature film. Colorization, 100 Years of Black Films in a White World is our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And Will Haygood joins me from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Under the Radar, Will. Thank you very much. Always wonderful to talk with you. Well, it's great to talk to you. Now, you are known in all of your books, no matter what they are, they're great, fine detail, a lot of history in them. This is a flat out, you know, history, history book, if you will, about Black participation or perception and portrayal in white films. Tell me what drew you to this, because you've done profiles of many other people. I'm thinking of uh, Thurgood Marshall, for example, Sammy Davis Jr., that you've done a work on. What What about this that, that drew you to it? Yes. You know, I have to go back to my childhood. And it was in Columbus, Ohio. And every Sunday, my mother, she would give me 50 cents to go to the Garden Theater, which was on North High Street. And, you know, the mid 60s, this time was, it was the first time that my mother would allow me to take a trip away from home walking. And here I am, little kid, sitting in a theater, looking up at this 60 foot movie screen. And, and the stars were people like Rock Hudson, Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin, Richard Burton, Liz Taylor. There were no black people. I never saw at the Garden Theater when I was a kid, a movie that featured black people. And so I know that people always say, hooray for Hollywood. And I became a writer, very curious person and a journalist, always prone to ask questions and to dive deep into history. And I wanted to, you know, look at those movies that I saw as a kid and ask questions. Why weren't people who looked like me on the big movie screen? And that I think was the flame 
that somewhat lit this book. Aside from that, movies are just drama and there's a lot of drama. <laughs> and I just wanted to dive into that. Well, you certainly did. Now, you framed it 100 years, and you were very specific about starting with D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Why was that an important place to begin for this discussion? Yeah, it was a movie about the KKK, about the Ku Klux Klan. And it was extraordinarily racist movie. And that movie was seen all across this nation in 1915. So film critics looked at the movie and said, wow, it's dazzling, split screens and all of this astonishing camera work. And then there were film critics in Black people who said very rightfully, this is racist, this is brutal. This simply shows stereotype on steroids. It was a vicious movie actually. And yet uh, there was something about the film that film critics said, this is an outright masterpiece. And so to go deep and look at that movie to me was a smart place to start the book. Plus it was President Woodrow Wilson who showed the movie at the White House. And so you have a movie that's this explosive and racist showing at the White House in 1915, I think, says a whole lot about where the nation was at that time. And I think that's another example of your always finding some interesting tidbits. I mean, I must have read many, many, many treatises on Birth of a Nation. I don't think I was aware of President Woodrow Wilson's own words and his particular part that he played in it, nor his sentiments, his deep racist sentiments, which is why he allowed this screening at the White House. It was a big, it's a big deal. I mean, it's still a big deal to have a screening at the White House, but it certainly was <laughs> then. Nobody else had done that. Um, yep. Yeah. So because the film and it, the way it was made was considered such a masterpiece. Therefore, the content of it somehow became, in most people's minds, because it was stereotypical about Black folks, the truth. And so it was repeated over and over again. People looked to copy the masterpiece, if you will, both in style and substance. And so you have this film that really set the tone for how African-Americans would be portrayed in film for years and years, and some say would be up until today. One other thing, and I'd like you to read from your book about this, uh, Boston played a part in this. A lot of people don't know that the film was screened in different cities. That was D.W. Griffith's whole point. But it was a big deal in Boston, and there was a committee here, a commission here, that was supposed to decide on, you know, what kinds of content should be censored. And in the end, it came down to what Mayor Curley was going to do about it. And I wonder if you'd read from page 19. Yes. Mayor Curley finally emerged to announce the committee's decision to Trotter and a group of anxious NAACP officials. He told them that the committee had, quote, 
decided the license of the theater should not be revoked or suspended, end quote. After 18 mass rallies that took place in the city to protest the movie, it had come down to this. The birth of a nation would continue playing in Boston. The black citizenry listening to the an announcement were now out of options. Birth of a nation wins came the blazing Boston Post headline. Thomas Dixon was deliriously happy with how the lone battle had ended. Quote, months of frantic agitation, scheming and shouting and feeble rioting had gone for, for nothing except to advertise the picture. End quote, he crowed. His so-called masterpiece would go on to play for more than six consecutive months in Boston. And audiences around the country flocked to see it multiple times. In November 1915, to hurl the movie's openings around Georgia, the Ku Klux Klan celebrated with the ceremony at Stone Mountain, Georgia. A kerosene-soaked cross was set afire against the dark sky. William Simmons, a Klansman, in the preacher who was in attendance that night recalled, quote, under a blazing fiery torch, the invisible empire was called from its slumber of half a century to take up a new task and fulfill a new mission for humanity's good, end quote. The controversy attached to the film showed no signs of abating around the country. In May 1915, a group of black ministers in Chicago heaped scorn upon the movie. In February 1916, Iowa clergymen banded together and passed a resolution denouncing the movie. There were demonstrations in St. Louis between 1915 and 1916, when the birth of a nation was filling American movie theaters, the nation's population was a little over 100 million. Thomas Dixon had estimated that 20 million people would see the movie. His estimate turned out to be low. More than 25 million eventually saw the film during its run. A quarter of the population had it drilled into them from a movie screen that Blacks were criminal-minded, stupid, lazy, obsessed with white women, and malevolent. In some parts of the South, high school teachers began using the birth of a nation as a text, indoctrinating students with D.W. Griffiths telling of history. That's my guest, Will Haygood. His book is Colorization, 100 Years of Black Films in a White World. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Now, Will, um, from there, and 
this is a big deal as we've as we've established. You move on to then talk about African Americans taking back the narrative or attempting to take back the narrative. And one of the most important people in doing that was a filmmaker named Oscar Michaud. And he literally self-made, self-taught, really, uh, yep. and started doing films that portrayed folks of color in their lives, you know, with, you know, normal lives. Here we are. And so I have a little clip from one of Oscar Michaud's films. This is called Swing. It's a 1938 film. The the film is really about a man trying to be the first black producer on Broadway. But really what I think it shows is just normal black folk living. Yep. (laughs) Yes. Here we go. Nice place you have. Thank you. Won't you have a seat? Now make yourself right at home while I go help Mandy with the dinner. Would you like to listen to the radio? I'd rather listen to you, Nina. Why, Mr. Gregory, what do you mean? Why can't you call me Ted? I'm a young man. And don't you understand, Nina? Haven't you been able to see that that I love you, dear? That was from Oscar Michaud's 1938 film, Swing. How important was Oscar Michaud's, and he was clear about it, intentional filmic response to D.W. Griffiths and the stereotypes that were by now quite embedded in uh, the minds of many Americans? You know, he thought that his mission in life with his camera should be to, to change the harmful effects from that film. And so he set about during Uh, his entire career, making films, hopefully, where Blacks realized that there was someone out there who would stand up to the harmful effects from cinema. And he thought, in his mind, if he could just make movies that would make people laugh, cry, and think that he would be somewhat successful. He was black, working in a world that had really not seen a black filmmaker with his type of, uh, you know, spirit, his hustle. Uh, He crisscrossed the country. He made his movies in the Midwest. Hollywood did not want anything to do with him. And so, He is certainly one of the heroes of this book. When I was in high school and when I was in college, I never heard his name uh, and his name should be celebrated. It should be heard. Folks should know about him. So one of the other points that you make is that, you know, stereotypes are just that. They're stereotypes and they can be harmful, whether they are uh, particularly brutal in their interpretation or if they are meant to be, I'm using air quotes that you can't see, celebratory in some way or a tribute. And I was fascinated by the the time that you spent talking about the interest and the enthusiasm about the portrayal of Black women as mammies to the point that, Will Haygood, you told me something in this book I had never, ever heard of, that there was a mammy monument bill. A North Carolina congressman uh, wanted to make a bill in tribute of mammies. I I, I was open mouthed when I read this. Yeah, me too. I mean, I was, yes, I was stunned. It failed, but just the fact that in the nation's capital, 
it was hardly debated. I mean, you know, it was something that might have happened. I mean, that's how powerful the image of the black maid in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s was. And just so people know, there's a hundred years that you're covering in this book with a lot of history. So, you know, we spent some time on the the early part of uh, the hundred years, but in the back end of the hundred years, you're dealing with real experimental filmmakers who wouldn't take no stuff, uh, like <laughs> Melvin Van Peebles and with his sweet sweet Beck's badass song. That was his independent movie that stirred a lot of attention, and how that came together all the way to where we have been discussing Oscar So White and the whole question about whether Hollywood will ever respect the artistry and the work of, of, of black folk. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, it's a huge leap, though. You, you know, you got a lot to say along the way. I asked you why you wanted to begin with Griffiths. So why did you want to make sure that you got to Oscar So White and this sort of era where we're thinking about what does representation mean in a positive way and, and how far have we come, et cetera? Yeah, you know, it is hard to make movies. It is hard to have movies made. And yet there's this song that we all hear, Hooray for Hollywood. (laughs) But there is a epic story behind that song when you start to talk about Blacks and Black filmmakers and Black stories. I mean, during the 70s, Uh, There were not a lot of Black films made. And when you look at this 100-year history, I mean, it flows right into the death and the murder of George Floyd because that woke up Hollywood in a searing way, in a way that it's never been woke before. And you had Hollywood actors write letters after the George Floyd death. Uh, And those letters said that this medium has played a part in the harmful imagery of Blacks on screen. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been some wonderful movies full of triumph and some wonderful filmmakers uh, who are white Uh, who have tried to tell these stories. But you have a history that's very painful. And we saw that pain uh, in 2014, 2015, when there were some celebrated performances by Blacks on the big screen, and there were no Blacks nominated for Oscars that almost seems willful. That almost seems like there's some force out there that is not owning up to the excellence of Black genius on screen. And so you look at this book, 100 years, you have this movie in 1915 in the White House, and then you have all these years later at Princeton University where Woodrow Wilson, he was the president, the school finally rebelled against him and took his name off of 
certain buildings on that campus in the wake of the George Floyd murder. And so it really gives me, I don't know, chills to think of what black artists have had to go through in Hollywood. When you tell the story of blacks in Hollywood, like I do in this book, you know, and when you step away from the screen and you simultaneously tell the story of what is going on on the street level in this country, then you really get the full picture. And, and I think it was extremely crucial to tell the whole picture, hmm. how much movies make, who makes the movies, who gets to make the movies, who green lights uh, the movies, why does people like Spike Lee have to fight so hard to get his movies made, even though he's had monumental success? It's just a fight. It's a fight for all filmmakers, but it is a fight particularly for Black filmmakers. Is that what you want readers to take away? Yes. You know, movies bond us. Movies represent a medium where... If you're, you know, poor, rich, Asian, Hispanic, black, white, whatever, and you meet somebody who doesn't look like you or from the same race as you, you both will probably agree that a movie, a movie like Malcolm X, like Spike Lee's Malcolm X was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Film gives us a reason to talk to each other to explore each other. I think that the world of film has missed some opportunities, that there are great untold stories, especially when it comes to black history, to black history that needs to be told, that should be told. Thanks for joining me, Will. Well, thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. Will Haygood is the Bodeway Visiting Distinguished Scholar at Ohio's Miami University, following a three-decade career as a correspondent both at the Washington Post and the Boston Globe. His latest book is Colorization, 100 Years of Black Films in a White World, and it's available in bookstores and online now. Well, that's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org, news, under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Sarah Kaplan is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.